Hello, and welcome to Token Theater, a podcast about representation on film. My name's Aditya Joshi, and before we get into today's episode, which is about the talented Mr. Ripley and features the talented Mr. Drew Haskins, I wanted to make a quick announcement about the future of Token Theater. Don't worry, nothing sad is happening. Amanda and I have just been working behind the scenes on a very exciting new partnership with a platform that we love, and we're confident that this will help us bring Token Theater to a brand new audience that can absorb and appreciate the movies about underrepresented communities that we strive to talk about on the podcast. Um, that being said, there will not be any new episodes for the next few weeks uh, as we settle in and establish the new routines and norms around launching with our new partner. So don't worry, we're not gone forever, but just consider this the mid-season break of Token Theater. And now, without further delay from me, The Towns and Mr. Ripley with Drew Haskins. Hello! Hello! Welcome to Token Theater, a podcast about representation on film. My name is Aditya Joshi, and joining me today, now that he's finished dancing in his best friend's clothing, Drew Haskins. What's up, Drew Haskins? Hello, it's me, Drew Haskins. I'm so excited to be here today, representing the white gay community, a loosely marginalized community. <laughs> a heavily underrepresented community <laughs> heavily underrepresented. in Hollywood. Um, I'm excited to be like loosely qualified enough to be on this podcast today, talking with you. I'm a big fan. All right, Drew, before we get into the movie that we're going to talk about today, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? And you've already alluded to how you identify, but we can go back into that too. Cool. So as previously stated, I am white gay. I live in Los Angeles, California, where I work in music business, but I also am a culture writer and uh, sort of dabbling in script writing on the side. Um, and you host def- a podcast. Yes, I do. I co-host a podcast with my lovely boyfriend called Smize Queens. It is in America's Next Top Recap podcast. Or America's Next Top Model Recap podcast, I should say. It is America's Next Top general all <laughs> Yeah, all we, we talked about like a SWAT on CBS last <laughs> week. <laughs> They have a whole season on Bull. I highly recommend it. Oh, God. Yeah, I could talk all day about Michael Weatherly. Um, but yeah, we've I've been hosting that podcast for about a year now. We're currently on a COVID hiatus, but you can find new episodes coming to your streaming services in hopefully a few weeks. Amazing. Okay, Drew, what, what movie are we screening today in the Token Theater? So... There are a lot of movies in the white gay canon that we could have chosen from today. I know that you had proposed we maybe do something along the lines of Brokeback Mountain or Call Me By Your Name. I, for one, wanted to do Talented Mr. Ripley, both because it is a maybe the quintessential white gay movie, but also a movie I have just unabashedly loved for over 10 years now. I think it's a perfect film. The Talented Mr. Ripley is an interesting choice, um, both because, unlike the movies that we've discussed so far on this podcast, um, but I think probably in line with movies that we'll discuss going forward, it is not a movie about... uh, The most notable thing about it is not the representation, uh, nor is it, to to your point a second ago, considered um, necessarily by the broader community as a white gay movie. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's not the first thing that I think of when I think of Mr. Ripley is not like, this is a movie for white gays. Whereas 
Moonlight, which we talked about, is definitely a movie about the queer black community. Right. Um, Real Women Have Curves is definitely a movie about the L.A. Latino community, like namesake Indian community, right? This is much more of a nuanced interpretation of of what a movie for gay whites is. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Like a movie like Brokeback Mountain or Call Call Me By Your Name is definitely, both of them are sort of takes on this sort of thwarted romance narrative that we see time and time again and i do i mean brokeback mountain is not a from the minds of a queer writer or queer director or queer performers whereas call me by your name is directed by luca guadagnino who is a gay man and you know talented mr ripley also is completely straight talent behind the boards um Though it is based off of a Patricia Highsmith novel, and she, I believe, was a queer writer. Um, yes, a queer writer, though a notorious racist as well. <laughs> yes, I mean definitely, definitely problems. Like she wrote the bulk of her works in the fifties, fifties um, and sixties, which is definitely you know a fraught time. <laughs> but I mean, like the talented Mr. Ripley is just one of her many queer coded works, along with Strangers on a Train. Um, very explicitly, Carol is like one of her finest works, and that got turned into a movie a few years ago with. Oh, Kate I don't Blanchett. think I realized that 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 movie, which is very much canon white lesbian movie, yes, very is much. is a Patricia Highsmith novel. Yep. Um, I mean, she really like is known for her thrillers and mysteries, but Carol's kind of a like a play on like the '50s domestic melodramas that we see both like in her canon and also like in the films of Delgado Cirque and many others. Um, but I like Talented Mr. Ripley the most out of her works, I think. At least her filmic works. Um, just because it it is a queer romance, though not... So explicitly. Not so explicitly, and not in the same way that like so many of these star-crossed lovers movies kind of are. Mm-hmm. And um, it's definitely the kind of movie where you could have... I mean, I didn't watch it until this week for the podcast. Um, and it also is a little bit out of the realm of our normal podcast conversations and that it has been covered somewhat extensively by some media outlets though some ignore it entirely right the ringer notably has a fascination with the movie but it's one of those movies that i think if if i had watched 15 years ago i probably wouldn't have realized that it was a movie about a gay man yeah i mean for me one of the pleasures of watching it over the years has been every time i rewatch, i learn something new about it or find Mm -hmm. new things to kind of latch on to and especially after going to college where we went, I mean, we attended the same school. Like I studied a lot of both film theory and queer theory that like has really lent itself to interpreting this movie in kind of a new way for me, at least. I'm sure not for others. Like I'm sure there are many scholars who have talked about this movie and I mean, Highsmith's works in general. Um, but that's kind of why I thought this would be like a more fascinating movie to talk about than something that's not you know kind of more like queer canon cinema i Mm -hmm. guess definitely and before we get too deep in the movie um i'll just the talented mr ripley follows uh tom ripley matt damon um who is like sort of a low-level grifter in the books but in the movie he's really just kind of a, a naive guy who likes to play the piano and and dress up in fancy clothes when he we meet him going to uh, a fancy party where he fills in for the pianist. Um, but in reality, he's a piano tuner at Princeton. Um, he meets a man at the party who turns out to be um, this guy, Mr. Greenleaf, who's a shipping magnate. And he sends Tom to go abroad to Italy to find his son, who um, 
went to Princeton and, and Tom has pretended that he has gone to Princeton and bring him home. That son is, of course, played by the peak hot Jude Law. Oof, peak hot. <laughs> um, Jude Law has a peak hot streak of basically from Ripley through the holiday and maybe arguably longer. Um, but he's he is the he's he plays Dickie Greenleaf with whom Tom develops a fascination and an obsession and a massive crush. There are maybe um, unrequited or maybe requited romantic feelings between the two, something we'll talk about in a minute, but basically that sets Tom down a path to um, maintain, acquire and maintain that identity and that relationship at whatever cost, and it, it turns into a bit of a thriller, kind of escape the law, kind of um, breaking bad almost sort of portrait right. of a man. Did I miss anything, Drew? I think that is a perfect summary. Awesome. Um, so Drew, tell me about the first time that you watched this movie. I watched it under the covers after I went to bed one night when I was 13. Um, as I did with so many mo- many movies back in the day, like um, just because they helped me fall asleep. And I, like, I was, I've always been a very voracious film goer. And, you know, Talented Mr. Ripley was not really high on my list, I will say. Like, I always thought of it as just another genre thriller. And I controversially have always really disliked Matt Damon, <laughs> which is ironic considering that he is like one of the probably one of the biggest reasons this movie works as well as it does. Um, and interesting because I'm a notorious Matt Damon fanatic. Right. Um, so I think I mean, not to jump the gun, but I think this is maybe the only role that I'm like 100% gung ho on Matt Damon in. Um, but yeah, I watched it under the covers it was completely both blown away by like the style and substance of the movie. I've always been a huge crime and thriller fan. Um, and this really just like hit the pleasure center right on the mark for me. Um, and obviously I was really horny for Jude Law, which I think like everyone, <laughs> you know, of all stars and stripes is at the, after watching this movie. Um, and then I've watched it probably like seven or eight times since then like almost every year save a few and i watched it twice this week just because i was like so enjoying myself um it's one of those movies that i have a had a hard time watching only because i had in the years prior uh, read the wikipedia summary so i kind of knew vaguely the outline of what happened though as i as i mentioned to you and when you picked this movie i didn't realize that it was all the queer undertones in the movie. Um, but I definitely knew when people were dying and I definitely knew when confrontations were coming and I am someone who has trouble watching things when I know they're going bad. Right. <laughs> so that was, it was hard to watch, but it was definitely artfully done. I'm curious though, you know, like I mentioned a second ago, um, if, you know, if I had watched this movie at 10 or 12, I don't know that I would have fully grasped the queer undertones. Do you feel like you, as a 13-year-old, kind of coming to terms with his own sexuality kind of realized yeah for sure because i've always been kind of a sharp cookie when it comes to like (laughs) queer shit um no but i mean like by by 13 i kind of knew what my whole deal was um Mm. and it was pretty pretty easy to tell that this was a queer horny movie for me at least Mostly because, I mean, at the beginning of the movie, obviously, because of the Jude Law of it all. (laughs) I do not think that there has ever been a hotter performance on screen than Jude Law in this movie. It's unbelievable. Like, no one has ever been this tan. No one has ever had as good of a head of hair. And he is just so insouciantly charming. 
that it's so easy to see why every female and male character in this movie is completely enraptured by him. The part of the reason this movie works so well is Matt Damon, but also like you have to believe that Dickie Greenleaf is someone that Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, Philip Seymour Hoffman would all be obsessed with yeah. and, and in love with and enthralled by. And yeah, Jude just has this like effervescent, he's just, I mean, he's, uh, he floats around the movie like with such ease and such hotness, <laughs> for lack of a better word. His, yeah, I mean, his whole wardrobe even, it's just like, he's always in various states of kind of button downness or in a, like a flowy pant and a sockless shoe. Like, it's just very, um... It's it's Clooney inventing Casamigos oh, in my yeah. head. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, big Clooney Casamigos energy. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he's definitely a good gateway into both this movie's queerness, its horny tone, and the overall aesthetic. I mean, this is a very pretty movie to look at. All of it was shot on location in Italy, and I mean, it, it looks expensive. It does look expensive. Um, when, when you had, when you watch this movie first, for the first time, going back to like the underlying queerness, do you, does this movie stick out to you as, as one of the first movies that you kind of saw that in, or had you been able to pick that out in movies before? Probably the first dramatic movie. Um, mostly because I saw this movie before, you know, before your broke backs, before your... Well, obviously, called me by your names, um, God's Own Country. Like, I, I mean, this was the first movie I can remember that felt like gayness and queerness was not really a punchline. Because, um, I mean, at that time, when I first watched this movie, it was probably like 2007, 2008. I mean, we were living in a, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry kind of society. Right. Um, where you could make gayness a focus of your movie, but it was obviously going to be a, a punchline or like a Kevin James kind mm-hmm. of shit show and talented Mr. Ripley, which is, you know, predates that movie by about 10 years. It isn't, I I mean, it's not explicitly queer until like the final five minutes more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really, it's not subtle. Um, right. I mean, you can tell that, Matt Damon's or Ripley's fixation with Dickie Greenleaf is it transcends just a materialistic obsession um which I guess like I mean we will get to this later but I mean that's it really gets into this notion of queer desire um as one man well I mean you know queer as it pertains to cis men like one man looking at another man wanting that for himself and then this that this movie takes that idea and makes it into a very literal tale of consumption Mm, yeah and and something that um it really struck me about what you said and i think i can relate to it in a number of ways and i think a lot of poc probably can um with their own representation in movies is you know with indian people there are so many movies now coming out about indian people or with indian protagonists but so many of them rely on like a man confronting his identity and right. a woman confronting her arranged marriage and her culture. And you know what I mean? It's, it's all based on character versus culture and, and your identity is a central part of the story. 
Um, whereas I think what Ripley does is the identity is a central part of the story, but it very much informs the character. Like the character could have been straight. Ripley could easily have been straight, but his queerness and like the implied queerness of um, Freddie, right, is Philip Seymour Hoffman's yeah. character's name, and of Dickie, they add a dimension to the story and they make it much more interesting and and provide a lot more nuance to the way that you interpret that consumption and that that change in in um in Tom and I think like my I, one of the episodes of the podcast I think we're going to do at some point in the future is one of my one of my best friends from India um she wanted to do Nightcrawler on the podcast which is another one that is not at all about Indian identity right. um but she you know is it is a Mauritian Muslim girl with roots from in India and she saw Riz Ahmed's character in Nightcrawler and was like this is a great brown character that his whole story doesn't revolve around being brown he's just a character that has some brown elements and I think that we get that with Ripley and his queerness and the rest of the character's queerness yeah I mean going off of that too I think it's you're almost hard pressed to describe what Ripley's character traits in this movie actually are beyond that he has he's driven by this constant desire um for more things for more people um and it really i mean it keeps him going throughout the entire film like we don't know his backstory at all beyond what he fabricates for the benefit of dickie and marge and you know we never really get a sense of interiority beyond the occasional voiceover damon voiceover that i think are the one part of the film that doesn't quite work and this is a remake too of a, of a french film called purple noon from 1960 where which is a lot more bare bones than this movie is like there's no voiceover the ending's completely different i also don't think in purple moon he's uh there's any implied queerness not really just because i mean obviously there's a difference between 1960s cinema <laughs> like with like right. the Hayes code and everything and and i mean i are we supposed to spoil the ending? Yeah, we can spoil the end. There's spoilers okay. following. If you haven't seen spoilers this 20, 21-year-old movie. <laughs> right. Or, the, or this 51-year-old movie. Purple <laughs> well, Purple Noon ends with Tom getting caught mm, by police. Okay. And this movie, more. We'll, we'll get into it, I'm sure, but like Tom more or less gets away with it. Mm-hmm. Well, in the series, in the book series, he gets away with it. There yeah, because I mean, this is the first <laughs> book of like five or six, too. Um but yeah, I mean, I do think that that lack of interiority beyond like this basic element of desire is, I think, what the most fascinating part of the Ripley character is for me. Like, he's a scammer with no true compass in life besides just like constant momentum. The nice, the the good thing that this movie does that I think, from what I've read in the research of this podcast and and what I can tell from the books is, the other adaptations of this work do, do not do is it like gives Ripley some it gives us some empathy for Ripley. I think it sounds like in other adaptations, you know, to keep me honest here, um, he's a bit more conniving and he's a bit more aware of what he's doing. And here you really get the sense that he's just kind of along for the ride and he's given the opportunity and he's like, of course, like I've always wanted to go to Europe. And then he falls in love with, with Dickie immediately and and would actually stay there with him forever if given the opportunity. Right. And Purple knew none of that is an option like it starts when tom is in full grift mode like the murder of dickie's character is completely planned um be fooled though like i mean damon's ripley is still a monster in a lot of ways um it just everything feels a little bit more 
like, I mean, it feels like the motivation of love almost or desire rather than like just a desire for material wealth and like status. Mm -hmm. It feels, it feels like uh, Damon plays Ripley as someone who, whose impulses landed him in hot water and then found himself unusually adept at getting out of it. Yeah. As opposed to someone who had always been planning on murdering and covering up. I mean, you know, I don't think at f- you you get the sense that he realizes that the only way out of it is to murder. Right. Um and it doesn't feel super planned. Like I think that there's definitely a world and there there have been ad- adaptations of this where his whole goal in the whole movie is to take Dickie's inheritance. And then this right. I think is just to be with Dickie. And 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 you actually really get a sense of that. I think going in knowing that we were going to talk about it from this kind of queer angle right. made me um, dial in on those elements a lot more. But um, the last podcast, or the second podcast that I did here um, on this on this series was about Moonlight, right. and Aida and I talked about how sexual the non-sexual scenes are, like how they're just imbued with a sense of intimacy and romance and like desire. And I think, like, the jazz club scene in particular. Yeah, that is a horny scene. Um, Not, I mean, there's a lot of, like, phallic imagery, obviously, and with the microphone, and then, like, their mouths are so close that, like, it's almost this unconsummated kiss. Um, But, I mean, there's just a lot of, like, two-on, just, like, two-hander scenes between Dickie and Tom in this movie that do establish this sense of brothership i guess to use tom's um parlance in the movie um and it's i mean it is very it's edging i mean it's it's really like you're kind of pushing the boundaries of this relationship until it is made more or less explicit when they're on the rowboat and that triggers dicky into like a complete rejection um and obviously tom goes ballistic over that Mm -hmm. and it's it's really interesting because when they go to um with philip seymour hoffman though with freddie uh and the jealousy is like so palpable and it's and it's not just jealousy of friendship it's like pretty clear that freddie is also enamored and in love with which i think um i mean that is another major difference between the book purple noon in this movie and the book and purple noon freddie is like just a generic asshole but like philip seymour hoffman plays him like the cheshire cat in this movie <laughs> like i mean he is purring Tom. like it's Tom. so it's it, i mean it's just such a crazy performance like i love philip seymour hoffman i think he was like one of the best actors of his generation and he really just i mean he's only in this movie for maybe eight minutes of screen mm-hmm. time and he completely just like, I don't know what he does to the tone of this movie, but it makes it a lot more fun almost when he's on screen. Mm-hmm. But it definitely is a very campy arch character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, camp obviously is an essential part of queer art. So I'm glad that Anthony Minghella, the director, added that element to this film. Because I do think it makes like the, the potion a little mm-hmm. bit more fun. I mean, that line... Um... How's the peeping, Tommy? Is like talk about purred. Yeah, uh, it's like how's the peeping, Tommy? I can't even do his voice, but it's so deep and like seductive almost. <laughs> <laughs> but then, like you notice that it's kind of a game recognized game moment mm-hmm. too, because Freddie obviously is aware of what's going on below deck, 
and he's in the same position as Tom. He's just more articulate in his ability to kind of both be aware of himself and aware of other people. Now, yeah, that may be a good time. I think we're already kind of there to talk a bit more about the themes of this movie and, and what we think aged well, what we think didn't age well. I want to talk a bit more about this, like, um, camp and kind of like the queer themes of the movie um, as you see them, because outside of Tom being explicitly queer, I think you've alluded to this a bit. There are like a number of things in the movie that that feel very um, homages to that kind of um, mindset and that culture. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so... I guess going back to like the themes of desire and queer desire explicitly that I was talking about earlier, um, I studied a theorist and philosopher in college named Lacan, a French guy named Lacan, a French guy, a French guy named Lacan, um, who articulates desire as a sensation that needs to be recognized, um, uncovered, and then articulate to be fully satisfied. So I think a lot of Tom's journey in this movie is him recognizing his desire and then uncovering it. Though, I mean, I would say he obviously bungles it because he ultimately kills the physical manifestation of his desire. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the movie goes on for the second half as he tries to kind of transcend what he's done by consummating his desire by physically becoming mm-hmm. the object of his desire well it's so in, it's so interesting i don't think i realized or expected dickie to be gone by 45 minutes i mean jude law is only in the first third of the movie really two and a half hour movie um but his shadow is so present over the whole thing i mean obviously he's tom is pretending to be dickie at every step of the way after jude dies um but also you you get the sense that like both to your point, Tom is kind of consuming and becoming Dickie, but he also like clearly wishes that Dickie was still around. Like, I think I think his performance as Dickie with Kate Blanchett's character, um, like, is emblematic of that. I think that if you know if um, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow hadn't shown up in Rome, or if Freddie hadn't shown up, he could have played Dickie Greenleaf for the rest of his life. Right. And I mean, the ending of the film implies that he will as long as he can, too, because he, I mean, ties up the one loose end to the Ripley lifestyle. Um, I mean, it, yeah, he, he really does, like, go beyond after the consumption to almost mirroring Dickie in a way. I mean, you see it in just the physical transformation that Damon or Tom tries to do by taking off his glasses all the time. Um, he dresses in more fine clothing. I think it's implied in the film that it's Dickie's clothes still too. And I mean, he truly like, yeah, he creates a mirror image basically of the thing that he's lost just to both maintain a memory, but also ground himself in a desire that still kind of continues to form for him. I mean, Freddie calls him out. He's like, you change your hair. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, he, he does everything he can to pass as Dickie. He's using Dickie's accounts, using Dickie's passport, and using Dickie's name with Kate Blanchett. Um, and it's interesting. I think we can maybe, you brought it up. He ties up the last loose end to his, his life as Ripley. Yes. And performing as, as Jude Law. That, you know, as much as you don't root for Tom 
like you're very sad that he had to do that at the oh end. it's cr- it's a completely crushing moment um just i mean it's the one time in the film that we see him fully break down i mean he he gets heated he gets angry obviously at other points in the film but like this is the first time that he is kind of reacting to his own internal dialogue rather than like just reacting to like other people's physicality and behavior um and it's sad i mean it's you know lacan says that like you can't fully consummate your desire until you articulate it and you know throughout the entire film tom never really fully articulates his desire he just acts on it like the one time he comes close he ends up obviously killing dicky um and then at the end like he still can't articulate it because then he'd incriminate himself so therefore he has to destroy kind of this very secondary object of desire that we don't get to know too much mm-hmm. about but we um, like i like but we like cuz he's like a likable little fop like he's <laughs> <laughs> he's nice but um but no it it is like tremendously sad like i mean at the end of the film he's just this stunted guy who has just wreaked havoc all over the south of Italy. Um, and for what he, he doesn't, he ends up with Kate Blanchett's character, it's implied, and that's not what he wants, like, given what we know of his queerness and, like, what we know of, I mean, his entire motivations are driving him throughout the film. Like, he is dicky, but he's trapped with this, like, I don't even know how to describe Kate Blanchett's character in this movie. Like, she's just this, like, eager beaver but she she doesn't really move the needle of the plot too much beyond being a contrivance. I mean, because you really get the sense that he would kill her if her parents weren't there. Right. Like, and he I mean, he, he articulates it as such at the end. Um, but I mean, she's also this wealthy heiress. And I mean, he. I think at a certain point, he also realizes that she will be a means to an end too. But like, it does feel like almost an end of a queer era when he strangles Peter in the cabin of the boat um poor tom (laughs) poor tom i think i think perhaps it's it's emblematic of another theme of this movie which um is a theme of a lot of queer movies i think uh which is performative both masculinity and also being performative of of something that you're not i mean this is very explicit in that way and that tom is a grifter who like steals dicky's identity he's literally performing as someone that he wishes he could be um, but by the end of the movie, to your point, he like is kind of leaving, you get the sense that he's leaving his true self behind. He's now killed two right. men that he loved and is going to, in some capacity, be with Kate Blanchett, um, someone who he does not love, but he was willing to settle down with in Rome had, um, had other characters not popped up at the opera. Right. Uh, and now will settle because what's ultimately more important to him than his authentic self is the the prospect of living Dickie's lifestyle and performing as Dickie. I mean, at the end, it's kind of all he has left. I think it's interesting too. You bring up the notion of performative masculinity, which is obviously both a huge theme in queer art, queer coded art, but also obviously in queer lifestyles too. I mean, God, God, I mean, going to a Southern school, we know a lot of kids who like didn't come out until halfway through their college experience, just because they kind of had to get a foothold on, you know, the tenor of the social scenes at Duke before they really were able to live their authentic selves or whatever. 
I think it's interesting in this film that Jude Law is not portrayed as masculine so much as he is as this virile paragon of sex. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how to phrase that any better. Like, I mean, there's nothing especially masculine about Jude Law beyond... I mean, that he has, like, obviously he has this healthy sexual relationship both with his girlfriend, but also, like... With the Italian woman he this knocks Italian up, who girl, then kills like, herself. His fertility and virility is so potent that it literally kills someone in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jude Law, Jude Law is... Um, I think reminiscent of the way that masculinity has been portrayed in like ancient literature. He, for some reason, right. he reminds me of like an Apollo, the way that Apollo is portrayed in like yes. ancient Greek literature. Like, like there are a lot of these like, t- like muscle twinky, like Greek <laughs> gods and characters that like, they're still portrayed as heroes and like sexual objects, even though they're explicitly coded as queer in like, history and like the myth mythos surrounding that history well yeah they're just yeah they're 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 queer their primary uh sexual affinity is for sex it's not for men it's not for women it's you know to your point it's just extremely fertile (laughs) like characters and you can kind of tell like there are moments in this in the movie where dicky sort of he is he at least entertains the idea of queerness like the tub scene which is mm-hmm. extremely erotically charged like where when like tom sticks his hand and like kind of like flicks the bubbles like cha like it's yeah. very um <laughs> i don't know i mean it's like it's a really flirty moment and then you see jude law's butt which obviously is a a seismic event so <laughs> and and also freddy Freddie has, other than just, like, the Cheshire purring, um, has, I, I noticed he, the way he, like, flicks his hands and the way he holds himself, they're all very kind of stereotypically queer, especially for that yeah, era. Yeah, the, the limp wrist of it all definitely is, I think, probably a product of the 90s filmmaking and Hoffman deliberately making that choice more than, like, something that's explicitly painted into the text, like... I mean, for him to be this, like, fey Cheshire cat, like, of course you're gonna get a limp wrist. Like, and, you know, it is, on paper, a choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, it does work in the movie, and, like, Hoffman is handsy with Dickie, too. Like, he's always doing, like, shoulder rubs and pats and stuff, and, like, there is a level of physical comfort and familiarity within that relationship, the dickie Freddie relationship, that does not ever get to that point, and the Tom jude relationship beyond moments where jude physically puts his arm around tom like tom never has the balance of power in terms of yeah i think there's a there's an early scene where jude law kisses tom on the cheek and you can tell it really affects tom but i think you i don't know if you've interpreted it this way i i never really coded the dicky character as queer in the sense that like i don't think there's any world in which he would have realistically return Tom or Freddie's affections. Yeah. I kind of find him as someone who, and I know people like this in New York who, um, perform the other way who like perform almost effeminate at queer. Not that those are the same thing, but performs, perform a bit more stereotypically gay, um, among, uh, other gay people in order to kind of gain that affection and, 
and gain the the lust of those around them when in reality right. there there there's no intention of returning that as like legitimate affection like romantic affection it's very much just like a i want everyone to desire me and so whatever that performance that is required for that that's what i'll do yeah i i can definitely see that interpretation like i mean i've definitely not oh this is like maybe tricky territory but like i mean i definitely know like a few straight guys who are who can be very flirty with queer people um sort of performative in that way i do get that i think what at least for me the way i see this movie like dicky is very clearly articulated as this callous restless curious character who can't i mean he can't really plant roots anywhere which is why like he's escaping his life in america um he cheats on Marge with other women. He's constantly jet-setting around, um, not really staying in one place for too long. But, like, I think you can see in this movie that, like, he, the physical closeness of this, like, to me, it's a testament to Jude Law's performance that he does add I, what I read as queer shading to this role. Like, even if he he never fully articulates it, because at the end of the day, he is a society person, and he his primary allegiance is to Marge. Mm-hmm. But, like, the the fact that he's at least willing to sort of bat around these two queerish men in his orbit and, like, entertain their company and, like, sort of tease them a little bit. Like, I do think that there is an element to Dickie that is queer. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I interpret it partially that way and also partially just as a supreme confidence and awareness of his desirability i think like he knows what he's it's i think maybe i phrased it wrong he's not performing in a way that he is deliberately trying to entice tom or freddie i think that they were enticed just by his natural confidence aura and virility to your point and and he is aware of it and enjoys playing around with that batting it around as you said and is not and is so confident in his own sexual proclivity that he does not do anything to, um, you know, push them away or turn them away. Whereas a lesser character or a less confident character would panic. Right. And you know, like, even when Tom makes his desire at least a little bit clearer, I mean, Dickie doesn't respond with panic or... Yeah, like, queer panic, gay panic. Like, he responds with sort of this pity, almost. Um, This sadness. Like, I mean, when Matt Damon, or, God, I can't decide whether to do actor names or character names. When Tom, like, says, like, he's like, oh, like, we could go away together, brother, or whatever. And then Tom's like, you know, or Dickie's like, you know what, I'm so tired of you. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, like, he really, like, all he can do is kind of compartmentalize Tom into this inanimate object, something to be discarded at that point. Like, he can't respond with sort of a human emotion or empathy of any kind. But he never really does. Yeah, well, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure that that's not how he treats everyone. (laughs) I mean, that is how he treats everyone. It's it's very emblematic of perhaps another theme, which is like, a um 
it's definitely like an indictment of the American elitist class, right? Oh, in, for it, sure. You know, in, in a way, a lot of a lot of modern movies do really well. I guess now this movie's twenty one years old. It can't be considered modern anymore, despite having a a Matt Damon Jude Law right. <laughs> lead performance. Um, but you know, in the way that even uh, Parasite does, like the aspiration to that elite capitalist class turns people into monsters which you get the sense is what is required to be in that elite class right not only not only from jude law's like general callousness and and like the actions that lead to the death of another of a woman who he impregnated but also just from like i don't know freddie's general dismissiveness of tom as a person and from mr greenleaf's like cover-up of what he believes is his son's murder suicide of of a classmate um I just just all of that generally you get the sense that these people are in it for themselves and so it gives you some empathy for tom when he's in it for himself even if it is murder <laughs> and i think that's a persistent theme in a lot of highsmith's work like on strangers strangers in a train on a train like i mean the movie is about two and the book is about two men who literally enter a murder pact together a mutual murder pact in order to advance in society and their respective lives and then Carol, I think there's a way to read Carol in which it's one woman who sort of dives into what was then considered sexual deviancy in order to gain some sort of, like, she ascends from a shop girl to, like, a moneyed woman, more or less, through her relationship with the titular Carol. Um, and I mean, that's obviously a much more, that's a, maybe a harsher reading of carol than maybe the material merits um but i mean you definitely do see a lot of themes of this kind of like social ascension um through impropriety in a lot of her work and i'm I'm curious like i think that it's definitely something that you see in the straight community but i also think you know modern day straight community but it also really feels like something you see in the modern day gay community yeah elevation through status and like the use of your desire to gain that that elevated status oh my god exactly i mean like the commodification of queer objectification and desire in especially in the social media age is truly off the charts i mean like if you look at all these instagay accounts it's just a parade of shirtless people monetizing their body more or less like i mean everything's an underwear ad so like yeah i mean you definitely do you do see a lot of queer people in today and age, especially, I mean, obviously out people who are, like, really trying to move upward in the world through this sort of performative passing of what could be considered a straight ideal image. Mm-hmm. And and in that way, like, Dickie has almost com- commodified his desire. Like, he has packaged and sold his desire to the masses in a way that... I mean, you, you get the sense that maybe him and Freddie are from similar backgrounds, right? Or him and Meredith yeah, are from similar backgrounds. For sure. But they don't have Meredith, Freddie, Marge. None of them have the impact on people that Dickie does. And it's because Dickie is, again, so aware of his sexuality and his desirability. He, and he projects that outward to a point where he is universally desired. So he, in a sense, he almost queers himself for... <laughs> And, like, I mean, you kind of see that in a modern sense. Like, a lot of celebrities the past few years have taken to 
what a lot of media scholars are calling gay baiting. Like Nick, for example, a few years ago, Nick Jonas was on the cover of, uh, I don't remember if it was Out Magazine or The Advocate or like another queer press though. He was on the cover like in a state of undress basically. And obviously he is a heterosexual male married to Priyanka Chopra and everything like, but he's still going, getting shirtless explicitly for like a queer gaze. Well, I think there's like a lot to that now. You know, Nick Jonas, the Nick Jonas of it all aside, like I think just generally people in the modern social media age like to take their appearance and make it an object to be sold for people to consume, um, a consumable object. And I think in the way that Dickie does, and this is a stretch of it, but um, in the modern era, I think like men are unafraid to most men are unafraid to do that for both the queer and the female gaze. Right. Cuz like at a certain point if you you if you have a problem with who is consuming your own self-commodification, mm-hmm. it's intolerant almost at right at a certain point. Yeah, and I think there's also you there are people like this who will do a lot better with queer folks than they would with heterosexual folks. Both from like, you know, the very shallow likes perspective, but also from, you know, the elevating your career, elevating your social status perspective. Right. And, and that's where I think this is like, gets really complicated. And, and it's interesting to think about in the context of this movie, like, uh, how do you navigate that the desire that you receive from different groups, given your intention with those groups, like in the way that Jew just consumes and consumes and consumes. Right. And it's interesting that once Tom consumes Dickie, he's not really able to replicate that same level of commodification and outward desirability. But the one character who does gravitate to to Tom post-murder, post-assuming Dickie's identity, is Peter, who I think more than anything just recognizes another queer person rather than like an identity of his own so in that sense it's in a mirror reflecting another mirror yeah and the thing about peter of course is that he only you know there's a a quote early in the movie jude law pretty savage quote from jude law great neg from jude law where he's like dickie's like hey tom without those glasses on you don't look half ugly or whatever i can't remember the exact quote um and by the time he meets peter he's like fully assumed what dickie wanted him to be and what he wanted to be with dickie so it's like it's not tom anymore as we as we know him it's Tom as Dickie. This is sort of unrelated, but I kind of want to talk about Gwyneth. Let's talk about Gwyneth. So Gwyneth as, you know, just her own figure, I think is an object of global fascination, but also queer fascination, both in the way that we like really venerate our actresses. But there's also so something so like camp about Gwyneth, I think. Like this whole like totally self-serious woo-woo like pseudoscience that she's peddled into this like empire really i mean that i think that fascinates a lot of people like i know a lot of gay men who fully stand gwyneth i would actually consider myself one of those people (laughs) the gays love goop it's actually beyond me see i don't know if i love goop necessarily but her whole cult of personality to me is so fascinating like i definitely do not put a jade egg in your pussy like i don't think that's a good idea like obviously i'm not endorsing that but like i do i think it's fascinating that like throughout the past decade of goopishness like she truly has not slowed down or like 
been bogged down by what I do think is rightful criticism in a lot of cases. Like, she's really, like, it's just this blind upward mobility that, like, I really, really have to applaud. But also, I mean, as it pertains to this movie, I think she is absolutely fantastic in this. Well, like, well, Marge, Gwyneth Marge, you know, that's, like, an interesting... What you said is interesting because I think this, in 1999, Gwyneth, that was not the Gwyneth persona at all. She not was, a, like, no, no, no. one of America's hottest up-and-coming actresses. Definitely, like, a, an object of male, like, straight well, male desire. Is gorgeous was, in this movie. At that point, she was in between relationships, I believe, with Brad Pitt and Ben Affleck. So, like, she definitely was doing her whole tabloid thing. She had just won the Oscar, I believe, the year prior for Shakespeare in Love. Love. Like, yeah. she was it back then. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a really interesting performance in that it is so passive in a lot of ways. Like, she's never driving the action at all. But I think she's the only sympathetic character in the movie. In Purple Noon, the Marge character is even more passive, like, less sympathetic. Like, she enters an affair with Tom in that movie Mm -hmm. that obviously is not present here. Like, there's no... I think she recognizes Tom for his, like, crushes and his kind of, like, infatuation. She gets it because she's in the exact same place, and that gives them the common ground. And that's why, at the end of the movie, when she figures out the ruse... She plays that moment where she's like backing towards the door with such incredible horror because she realized that this is that like this betrayal runs very deep. Well, you almost get the sense it's hard, it's really hard to separate these characters from the actors and celebrities that these people would become. I think probably different 22 years, 21 years ago, you could probably watch this and be like, oh, the guy from Good Will Hunting and this hot guy and the girl from Shakespeare in Love. Now it's like Gwyneth Jude Law, Matt Damon. Right. Um, but it's hard to separate, like, to your point about how Gwyneth has become kind of a queer icon, the idea that at the beginning of the movie, Marge is, like, definitely ha- takes pity on Tom and has some intentions of making her him, like, a queer, be- like, a gay best friend. Right. Um, like, she thinks that they're going to be, you know, pals and they're going to get along really well. And then it's, like, you know, her worst nightmare where, like, he starts to supplant her. And then once Freddy supplants Tom, too, I mean, they have this little moment on the Mm -hmm. boat um, where she's like, yeah, he's always fascinated by someone, and and it's never me. And until he's not, you know? I mean, there's something very, like, powerful in articulating that. Because, I mean, so much, at least of nascent, like, queerness within ourselves, like, is built on these sort of unrequited crushes and these this sense that, like, oh, like, you're never really going to be happy because you're different, or because, like, what you want is seen as deviant. I remember when I was young, like, I was less fearful of, like, disappointing people and more fearful of, like, not being able to kind of, like, have a partner, like, have, like, all this stuff that I really wanted for myself just because I thought that my queerness would be, like, an obstacle to me getting it, or it wouldn't be Mm -hmm. perceived by society as, like, this like natural thing yeah and then i think tom displays an element of that and then when he finally opens up to to dicky it's like confirmed though it's not you know unlike i think you and a lot of other of our gay friends it's like you know that eventually kind of in some capacity goes away even if ever not fully tom like has that idea really reinforced by dicky just like flat out rejecting him 
not once, but like three times before he dies. It's sad. It is sad. I feel you feel bad for Tom. Being... You do. I think, I mean, this movie, you know, I was going through like letterboxed reviews, seeing like what kind of a general consensus was on this movie. And I think I'm a little more, I like, I would consider this an unequivocal masterpiece. Like, I think a lot of people do see this as sort of a, a genre film still, which I understand. Um, but I don't think that this film fully works unless you sort, you have to kind of understand the queer subtext of this, like, cause it just adds this entire layer of emotion and motivation to the movie that otherwise can just read a little bit cold and chilly. Um, and I mean, there is a movie version of this, of like Highsmith's book that is extremely cold and chilly with and pathological not a lot of and and you know right and it it's it's a good movie still but it's not successful because it doesn't tap into like something that was in Highsmith's original text though not as explicit either but like this is a movie first and foremost about like queer desire and like how a sociopath can really <laughs> warp that into something that ends up terrible for a lot of right. people okay drew let's talk about the legacy of this movie as a queer movie um since this is a podcast for representation what do you think do you think there's a lasting legacy from this movie in and as in so far as it relates to queer cinema i do to an extent i definitely i i hope i will say this i hope that as the years go on and more queer made movies about queer stories are produced. I hope that this becomes more of a footnote um, in the pantheon of queer-coded cinema. Um, Just because it is, you know, I mean, I did have second thoughts about doing a movie for this podcast that is directed by a straight man Mm -hmm. with an entirely straight cast. Like, it is... Like, it does feel kind of like like a cop out to do this over something like God's Own Country, which has like it's directed by a gay guy. Like I but I do think that unfortunately like a lot of queer cinema right now, and I don't want to get in hot water for saying this, but like I do think that like people kind of tell the same stories over and over mm-hmm. again in a lot of ways. Um just because it is like a very powerful story, like a coming out narrative or like a star crossed love narrative. Like it is right. timeless, it is universal, it is a very essential component to like a queer upbringing, and it's acce- and it's accessible for a straight audience. Yes, like a like an Indian coming of culture, you know, identifying your Americanness, like that's very accessible for a white audience. Um, what I think this movie, the way this movie succeeds the most to me, is packaging like a queer narrative in a very subversive way. Like it makes this kind of identity theft thriller into like you know a a study in queer desire and its manifestations like and i think the the fact that not everyone does pick up on that is subversive but also a testament to how like we're not trained to pick up on queer coding just because we don't see a lot of it unless it's like explicit 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 Yeah. Um, So, 
you know, I hope that, like, like, I think people should be writing about this movie for a long time, because it does come from the mind of a queer author, too. Like, it's not like it's devoid of queer talent behind the scenes, but I do think that, like, it would be better if Highsmith herself were covered in queer circles more than this movie would be, I would say. But I think this movie will hold up as a masterpiece of late 90s cinema. Um, And I think for a lot of the actors involved, it's still, I mean, for Jude especially, I think this is a career peak. Um, Because, I mean, beyond like, you know, I tweeted the other night, like his, they get a lot of mileage out of his pubes in this movie. Like (laughs) his performance in this is the best in the film. And like, you can see why it was the only one that was nominated for the Oscar Mm -hmm. out of them. But you could make an argument for, well, I guess you could always make an argument for Philip Seymour Hoffman, but yeah, he no, actually I may think, have been nominated this year for Boogie Nights. I actually don't know, but. I think that was, if he was nominated at all, I think that would have been the year before, but like, I mean, obviously I don't think he's in enough of the movie and he, right. like, he's a little too, um, like, I love the performance, but it truly is a little too, like, like her from Powerpuff Girls to like. <laughs> You know, it's not, like, a shaded performance, necessarily, but it is, like, a lot of, like, the, like I don't, I worry that, like, we talk about this a lot, and this movie is a very fun movie, mm-hmm. like, it is, like, very thrilling, very fun to look at, like, I mean, the aesthetics are crazy, it's campy, like, um, and he definitely is, like, the most, like, fizzy part of it. Yeah, so. for sure. I agree. I think, I think it, there's so much going for it even like I mentioned earlier, even without delving into the queer aspect of it. And once you understand and have a better grasp of like the queer subtext, it makes it an even more interesting movie to, to think about, especially those three main male characters, I think. Um, yeah. So, okay, Drew, last question that I ask everyone on the podcast. Um, how has this movie impacted the way that you approach your art? Oh my gosh. Um, well, I definitely really am interested in telling like queer stories obviously just both because like I think there should be more of them but also it's my own perspective um and this is like one of the kind of major queer texts in my life like I there are definitely a lot of things about this I like to emulate um like ultimately like I would love to write some sort of like queer thriller or even like a queer horror movie um that sort of plays off this identity of, or the, this idea of, like, identity theft or, um, like, consumption in some kind of way. You know, yeah, I think that's that's really the major way it's influenced me. But also, it, in a lesser way, like, I am obsessed with Jude Law. <laughs> um, I famously do not have a type, but, like, he, he is, like, a formative... Mm-hmm. formative person in this movie for me like i it truly like i i don't know a hotter performance captured by a camera <laughs> at all <laughs> not a hotter performance no it's in recorded I mean, human history than shoot i i i mean it's it's incendiary like it's it's really just like and he wasn't a big deal before this movie and you can see why everyone was like who is that <laughs> like i yeah, I, I'm definitely, like, one of the people who's, like, completely swept up by that. Uh, Drew, thank you so much for being here. Oh, truly a pleasure. A huge fan. So excited to be here. And I had so much fun today. Me too.
You've been listening to Token Theater. You can find us as always on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find today's guest, Drew Haskins, on Instagram at Drew Haskins, but with Z's instead of S's. You can find me on Instagram as always at Aditya.mov. The Talented Mr. Ripley is temporarily off streaming services, but it's a very popular Matt Damon movie, so I doubt it'll be gone for long. Be sure to stream that when it comes back. Uh, And as a reminder, for the next few weeks, we'll be off as we settle into our new partnership with our exciting, exciting new collaborator. Can't wait to share more with you about that. But for now, if you're missing us, you can go back and listen to all of our old episodes about The Namesake, Will and Have Curves, Moonlight, The Big Sick, Black Panther, and of course, the one you just listened to, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Until next time, I'm Aditya Joshi. Thank you so much for listening.